0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our fantastic co hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajin Bakta. Hello. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be giving a winter respiratory virus update. As you all know, winter brings lots of viruses. So, Patil, kick us off with the background to all this.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about what's going on right now. It's the start of winter. We're actually recording this on the day of the winter solstice. So you know what that means. It's the season of viral respiratory infections. And this is what we would have said a few years ago, uh, pre-COVID, but actually the patterns of infections have changed. All major respiratory virus infections are currently active and showing high rates of EMS encounters and hospital visits since October. Uh, which is early, by the way. I'm sure we're all feeling this in our EMS and hospital systems, wherever you are, um, because we're all currently stretched very thin. Many EMS systems are going on diversion, leading to extra long transport times. We all know how much we hate diversion. Uh, Here, actually in in our system, in Central California, we don't use diversion, but I know a lot of places do, and it's just so stressful. So today we're going to talk about what all this means and what to watch out for. But first, more of a background. So prior to the COVID pandemic, December to February were always peak viral respiratory infection season, with influenza affecting all age groups and RSV affecting primarily very small children. Other common respiratory viruses that we usually experience as viral syndromes or uh, respiratory infections are rhinovirus, parainfluenza, adenovirus, human metapneumovirus, and enterovirus, which, by the way, are all kind of around right now. That's what we're dealing with. Pre-COVID, all of these would peak about once a year in the winter, and that was that. Now, when COVID entered the picture, an interesting shift in the pattern occurred. So due to population-wide measures taken to prevent the spread of COVID, such as masking and social distancing, all of the other respiratory viruses, in essence, kind of disappeared, like we just weren't seeing them. And it's not that they were completely gone, but they just weren't really, it's like, they kind of felt like they were completely gone for a while. Now, I'm going to describe the data from our local region in Central California. So although the the timing may not be exact depending on where you are. The patterns do apply to the country at large. It's just that the months may be shifted forwards or backwards depending on where you live. And of course, well, also the patterns will vary depending on what part of the world you're in. Now for our community in Central California, we had our our first big surge in COVID infections in the summer of 2020. And then we also had COVID surges in winter 2021, summer 2021, winter 2022, which was the worst yet, summer 2022, and now currently another rising wave of cases, which I would call fall to winter, fall 2022 to winter 2023. So that's about two big peaks in cases per year. Now, last winter, one year ago, we started to see a few cases of RSV and influenza start to pop up again, but minuscule still in comparison to COVID. Then late spring, early summer 2022, so this is basically around like, I'm going to say May, June, July of this year, we saw a huge wave of influenza cases, which hadn't been seen since December 2019 to February 2020. So I'm talking just pre-COVID pandemic. So now, meanwhile, during this entire time, the rest of the common respiratory viruses hadn't really been showing themselves, but fall 2022 now has been a different story. Since the start of fall, we're seeing a mixture of about five major viruses. Okay, this is the big five that we're seeing, RSV, influenza, COVID, rhinovirus, and parainfluenza. And according to past statistical patterns, RSV is likely peaking now, which is December 2022, whereas we're probably halfway to the peak of the influenza season, according to our local modeling. Uh, Probably we have a few more weeks until influenza peaks. So back to the pattern at large. Usually we would see one peak of influenza infections per year, and now we're looking already at two peaks per year for 2022. In addition, we're seeing many positive RSV tests in the hospitalized adult population. So before, this was only seen in kids. And by hospitalized, I'm including ED visits as well as actual admissions to the hospital. So usually like an adult who would get RSV, that would just be like a minor cold. They wouldn't like show up to the ED with that or, you know, request ambulance transport. This is really concerning because all of this is resulting in many more ambulance calls and hospital visits for patients of all age groups, including children, and right now we don't know of a single EMS or hospital system that isn't inundated with patients. Specifically in our American ambulance system, we've transported over 10,000 patients with respiratory complaints in 2022. This fall, there's been a rise in pediatric respiratory transports. So just because, let's just focus on the PEDS numbers for a second. September and October 2021, that was last year, we transported 138 pediatric respiratory patients. And this September and October, we've transported 184, which represents a 33% increase in pediatric respiratory transports. I don't have exact November and December numbers yet, but just like based on the cursory glance, they look even higher. Now, we've done a bunch of episodes on respiratory illness, so we do point you to the following episodes, episode 55, pediatric respiratory infections, episode 31, COPD versus CHF, which is our acute respiratory distress differentiation episode. Episode 23, Pediatric Respiratory Distress, and of course, our multiple episodes about COVID that you guys are probably tired of hearing about.
0: Well, let's jump to the pathophysiology of all this. You know, why are there so many different respiratory viral infections right now? And why has the pattern changed post-COVID? Sajjan, why don't you kick us off with what's going on? Why are things changing?
2: Well, a number of reasons and explanations for, and each of them probably bears some truth. As Patil was mentioning earlier, we started wearing masks and social distancing, which prevented the spread of COVID, but also prevented the spread of other respiratory viruses. So the population at large was not exposed to all of the routine viruses we're constantly exposed to. This led to a few different things. Some people are now immunologically naive to these viruses, such as kids who have not really been exposed to as many viruses as they would have otherwise, and More small kids are having symptomatic infections because it's the first time they're being exposed to some of these viruses. Even some older adults or older kids who are normally exposed to viruses all the time have now had maybe a year or two years where they may not have had those asymptomatic viral exposures that keep your immune system working in tip-top shape. Therefore, weakened immunity on a population-wide basis may have a part to play here as well. Now, why would this not have led to huge peaks last winter when COVID restrictions significantly eased up for the first time? Some scientists think that this is because the influenza or RSV cases came first in the summer, and viruses don't propagate or live as well in the heat, and so perhaps that's why it didn't surge so bad. There are still a lot of unknowns here, and some possible reasons are outlined, but there are likely other factors not really considered and still needs to be studied.
0: Let's jump with the assessment. You know, first we're going to start with the pediatric assessment. That really was covered in great detail in episode 55 of the podcast. But let's cover, you know, rapid initial assessment of any kid with trouble breathing, right? And that's the pediatric triad. So you're going to look at the appearance the work of breathing and circulation. And this kind of gives you that doorway assessment or that kind of doorway look of like, how is this kid doing? You know, in appearance, are they interactive? Are they consolable? Do they have muscle tone? Are they laying down? Are they sitting up? The number two, what's their work of breathing? You know, are they tripoding? Are they leaning forward? Are they drooling? They have retractions. You can see all those little muscles between their ribs back and forth. You know, really got to get their shirt off, especially in winter, it's hard. They're so bundled up. Can you hear audible strider or wheezing? And then circulation, right? You're going to check the skin for modeling. Are they paled? They have cyanosis around their lips. And let's delve more into retraction of the chest. You know, there's subcostal retractions, which are the inward movement of the abdomen just below the rib cage. There's substernal retractions, which is the inward movement of the abdomen at the end of the breastbone. Or intercostal retractions, which are the inward movement of the skin between the ribs. You know, kids are really resilient and they can tolerate distress and shortness of breath for a really long time. So I feel like they go, 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 and then they just stop. And that's what you got to watch for, impending signs of respiratory failure. And these are those red flags. Patil, go through the red flags for us of impending doom.
1: So our red flags are just a very sudden onset of distress. Um, So like the kids, fine, fine, fine. And then boom, something happens. Uh, Hemoptysis, severe retractions, lethargy, uh, sitting up, leaning forward posture, uh, dysphagia, and aphonia. So and just in general, to sum it up, if you see a kid who is just too quiet and they can't make any sounds, that's really, really, really bad. Like you want a kid to just be like active and screaming. You know, really briefly, we'll talk about the adult assessment. Really what you're initially trying to figure out is, is this a patient that's going to be all about the ABCs first versus load and go as fast as you can versus actually hang out and try to treat them? Severe signs in adult respiratory distress patients are tachypnea, so breathing really fast, tachycardia, or a fast heartbeat when they're tripoding, so when they're just like sitting forward and cannot sit back at all. Um, If they're speaking in just like one, two, or three word sentences, they're using a lot of accessory muscles because that also means they're going to tire out. Uh, if there's diminished breath sounds and altered mental status. And then, of course, if you put the pulse ox on and you see hypoxia. You know, these are, we're just kind of mentioning the worst of the worst right now. But really, in general, with all of our, all of these winter respiratory viruses, uh, we're seeing the full spectrum of respiratory distress. So it could just be like from a little bit of a cough to, of course, these severe signs. And I think really you're just thinking about the severe signs to know, you know, how fast you have to intervene and how fast you have to transport. And for a large
0: majority of the population, right, they're not getting affected very much by this. They have a cold, cough, runny nose, they're doing just fine. I think those aren't the people calling 911, right? Those aren't the people initiating the system.
1: I also want to add, because these cases are in such large numbers right now and putting such a strain on so many EMS and hospital systems, that a lot of EMS systems are on certain days having to use some of their treat and release policies. And so again, if sometimes if they just have like a runny nose or a little bit of cough and they have normal vital signs that could be a perfect person to treat and release as opposed to transport to a hospital.
0: And with all these viruses, there's no instant fix, right? There's no awesome drug that just takes it out, right? They're a virus that's got to go through your system. So it's really just supportive care. Um, So Saj why lead us through the management, the supportive care of these different cases
2: we'll start with uh, pediatrics and we'll talk about our most common pediatric respiratory virus right now, which is RSV, which causes bronchiolitis. We used to say that bronchiolitis is the most common reason for admission to the hospital in the first year of life. As we discussed in the intro, these patterns are now changing and we're also seeing older children presenting with RSV and even adults I'm actually seeing a lot of adults, especially who have a history of asthma or COPD, getting really bad RSV infections that'll cause an asthma or a COPD exacerbation. They can be pretty sick. So the clinical presentation of RSV is usually in kids less than two years old, but can present up to age five or even age 10. Bronchiolitis is an infection of the lungs usually caused by RSV, but it can also be caused by any number of common cold viruses, co-infection with multiple viruses occurs in 10 to 30 percent of young hospitalized children. This is kind of defined and noted by the triad of fever, cough, and respiratory distress. This is due to viral infection of the bronchioles, which are small airways that induce smooth muscle bronchospasm and mucus secretion into the bronchial lumen, and that ends up causing edema of the smooth muscle walls, and that can make it really difficult to pass air in and out. You will see increased work of breathing, retractions, prolonged expiratory phase, and you can hear wheezes and rails or crackles on exam. You might see expiratory grunting as well. Children can become hypoxic as well, especially at night. Parents always notice this, that their kids will get Shortness of breath and congestion at night. And this is most likely due to a combination of mucus plugging, atelectasis, or some collapse of small airways, especially when the child is asleep and the chest wall muscles relax a little bit. It causes even more collapse of those smaller airways. Now, RSV can also cause just periods of apnea in up to 5% of children, especially in premature children. So the treatment of bronchiolitis this is a self-limiting disease so it's really supportive care. Typically we see infections lasting no more than five or seven days so hopefully within that period if you're able to support them with oxygen, hydration, and other supportive care things we can get them over that hump. The cornerstone of treatment really is nasal suction and supplemental oxygen if necessary. We can try uh, steroids or epinephrine or albuterol, but the best practices per the Seattle Children's Guidelines, fewer interventions will ultimately benefit the patient over the long term. Now, I will say that with the current RSV infections, uh, we recently had a town hall with a lot of the pediatric intensivists Up in the Northern California area, and they are noticing that a lot of the RSV bronchiolitis right now are responding to um, albuterol treatments a little more than they have in the past. But again, this isn't really standard of practice, it's something that you can try for these really sick kids. But really, the most important thing is nasal suctioning and supplemental oxygen. And of course, that albuterol really helps if the child has an underlying component of asthma or reactive airway disease. Although the inhaled bronchodilators like albuterol um, can help, especially in underlying asthma, to reverse bronchoconstriction, multiple randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews have found no clinical improvement with albuterol in first-time wheezers or in uh, new onset bronchiolitis. And actually, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends against routine use of albuterol and bronchiolitis as a level A recommendation. Still, again, in severe distress or in a child with recurrent wheezing where you suspect underlying asthma, you can consider a trial of albuterol. If it does work, please let the ED physician know so that they can potentially use this again if the patient starts to develop worsening respiratory status. Overall, for upper and lower respiratory infections in adults and children, the goals are to support them with suctioning and oxygen as much as that's needed, but there aren't too many specific interventions that can or need to be performed. At home, I always recommend that parents use whatever suction they have available. There are a lot of commercial devices. You can use the bulb syringe that is very common, and I believe that we have in our ambulance system, anything to try and decrease that nasal pharyngeal congestion and allow the patient to breathe better.
1: The nose Frida is magical though. And guys, we're not sponsored. They're not paying us, but (laughs) (laughs) um, it's literally the best gadget to get boogers out of your kid's nose.
0: And I would definitely agree if you have a kid under age five, you need to go buy that. It's a very cheap device, but it's just a ability for you to suck their nose since they can't blow it. And the mucus doesn't get in your mouth, but it really helps you clear out their nose so they can breathe so much better let's jump to protocols. There's multiple protocols in our own SEMSA, Central California EMS Agency System, that you can use depending on the age and the actual chief complaint of the patient. They could range from shortness of breath with bronchospasm to shortness of breath with pulmonary edema, to respiratory distress. So, Patia, why don't you take us through some of this?
1: Yeah, I figured we would just briefly go over the adult respiratory distress and the pediatric respiratory distress protocols. So for the pediatric respiratory distress protocol, I'll talk about that one first. Really, it's to observe the respirations, auscultate the lungs, and really don't try to visualize the airway or examine the throat, um, because we want to try to agitate these children as little as possible. You would support respirations as necessary, um, give them 100% oxygen by non rebreather mask or blow by if needed, and then place the patient in, the, in a position of comfort. So, again, if somebody is tripoding, you want to try to keep them in that position as much as possible. The next step in the protocol is to think about nebulized albuterol, um, and that's if they have wheezing. And again, if it's really just croup, which is just a barky cough. You're going to not do albuterol and go straight to the next step, which is nebulized epinephrine. Nebulized epinephrine in our system is available for croup only. And again, that has this like barky seal-like cough uh, without wheezing. For transport, you're really going to try to minimize on-scene time, and a parent should be allowed to accompany the child to the hospital in order to kind of ease the child's fears and apprehension and to really keep the kid as calm as possible. Now, only if the patient is in severe distress do we do IM epinephrine, and that would be 0.01 mg per kg of the 1 to 1,000 formulation with a maximum dose of 0.4 milliliters, and then contact the hospital again, pretty kind of straightforward stuff. Now for adults, uh, let's go into our adult protocol, which is again, your initial assessment, which includes establishing their mental status, vital signs, breath sounds, do they have edema, cyanosis, uh, how is their inspiratory to expiratory ratio, any accessory muscle use, retractions, neck vein distension, tracheal position, chest diameter, and diaphoresis. Now, be prepared to assist ventilations and place everybody on a cardiac monitor. And while you're transporting, you can attempt to start an IV at that point. Now, accurate determination of the cause is difficult, and so you do try to distinguish between upper and lower airway obstruction. So upper is going to be more inspiratory difficulty with stridor, now you're going to hear that in the neck, and whereas lower airway obstruction is going to be more exhalatory difficulty with wheezes or crackles. And then we're going to think about albuterol administration as needed, like if they're wheezing, and if somebody is bad enough to get intubated, so if they're just so out of it, they just immediately get intubated, you're really going to give them epinephrine first and then think about albuterol. History is going to be really important to obtain, and so Think about, you know, how fast it progressed, any associated chest pain, sputum, if they're tired or how long they've been breathing hard for, any medications that they've been taking, exertional association, and if there's any diagnosis of a similar episode. Now, in adults, of course, We see a lot more chronic illness than children, and so sometimes you're getting a call for respiratory distress or shortness of breath, and it's really going to be like a cardiogenic pulmonary edema, like if they have heart failure, or it might be COPD, chronic bronchitis, emphysema, and so that could be what you're dealing with, or it could be pneumonia. And so again, you're not really sure when you get the call what you're going to be dealing with. But as you go and look at the patient and get their history, then hopefully it will help to lead you down a certain path.
0: Let's do our summary take-home points for what everyone wants to know about what our current state is with all these viruses going around. Patio.
1: I think really it's just that there's a lot of different viruses out there right now causing high prevalence of infections. And it's not just the COVID we've been used to, but now we also have COVID plus influenza, parainfluenza, RSV, you know, adenovirus, a lot of different respiratory viruses going around.
0: Sajam, what are your take on points?
2: All of these viruses can cause very mild symptoms like the common cold, but you should really know the warning signs for respiratory distress, especially in children where it can be hard, just so you know when to take these cases seriously and when to speed up those transport times.
0: Yep. And my take home point, I'm sure you're sick of hearing about is with all these viruses around, please remember to protect yourself, you know, wear your PPE. We need you out there in the workforce taking care of our community, taking care of us. And so if we get sick, it's hard to do that. Thanks everyone for all that you do.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you. podcast at americanambulance.com once again that's podcast at americanambulance.com thanks
2: thank you for joining us on the american ambulance ems podcast produced by american ambulance in fresno california the views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of american ambulance or ucsf fresno and i'm john mark bergen american ambulance's media producer saying thanks for joining us have a great shift and stay safe out there